What's up, Chapel family? It's a big day. I want to take just a second just debrief that. Is watching Mick be able to baptize his daughter and grandkids and just encourage you that God is not a short-sighted God. He's a long-term God. He sees the eternal perspective of their eternal plan of the entire universe. And sometimes we lose sight in just being in the short-sighted of the issues or the drama or the trauma or the, uh, all that stuff. And I'm just going to encourage you, keep praying. Like for your loved ones, your friends, your kids, just keep on praying and watch God answer those. That's a great testament to that. A couple of big things. Today is a special day. It is Pastor Anthony Martin's 40th birthday. He is now middle-aged. And it is also uh, Tommy and Marsha Alexander's 50th wedding anniversary. If y'all stand up real quick. That's a big deal. 50 years. It seemed like a real long time to Marsha and a real short time for Tommy. Hey, a lot of good stuff. Probably when you came in, you saw the painting from last week that's out there. Uh, so people were asking about that. We're doing a silent auction for that. You can, you can put your bids down on a piece of paper out there. All those proceeds will go directly to the Shoals Dream Center to help support that mission and all that over there. So if you're interested in that, you can stop by there. And secondly, uh, you may not know this, we're Elder Governed Church. So that means we have elders. The terms for elders are life, and we have uh, what I think is a pretty good process for that. So the elders, we have a list of names of men we believe are already fulfilling the role of elders. And then we keep that list, we pray with this until we're all unanimous and say, hey, this guy is a potential elder. We walk through an interview process, an application process, and there's 12 months of them coming to elders retreat or elders meetings, kind of elder in training to see if the chemistry's right, to see if they want to take on this responsibility. And the last step of that process is we put them before the church for confirmation. And so it's not a vote, it's a confirmation. So if you'll throw Johnny Flurry up there. Johnny is an elder candidate in confirmation. So that means that you have two weeks to give feedback. You can email it to uh, hello at wearechapel.org or just call us, let us know, or text that number. Or you can find one of the existing elders, Dr. Stanley, Ray Sartain, or Aiden Batson, or myself, and just give us feedback. That feedback can be positive, like, hey, man, no-brainer, Johnny's the man. Or you can be like, dude, that dude supports Nick Saban, and Saban is the Antichrist. Like, no. Like, it, it's a chance. It gives the church feedback in those who are going to to help govern our, our church body. And so it's a, I love the way I talk to other churches across the nation, the way we govern, I feel like is a very biblical and strong way to govern the local body. And so that is coming. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter five as we're back into our master class series. And we're gonna uh, continue. We've kind of moved out of the Beatitudes. Pastor Anthony walked through what it means to be a, a city on a hill, a light and salt and all those things. And so that's gonna be a, a little turn. Jesus turns the teaching just a little bit if you'll throw some of those signs up, like, I don't know about you, but hopefully you know what that is. Now, my kids are all in the training for driving, so they think that means slow down, but police officers know that means what? Not just stop, complete stop. Like, all four wheels stop moving, right? So, throw up the next sign. We know that means 40, not 41, not 42, not 43. If you're one of those, not 30, it means 40, right? If you're going 30, you need to pull over, let everybody else over, but it means 40. It, it's a rule. It's a law. It's a speed limit. And some of y'all are saying, well, are we talking about signs? Today? I really need a sign. Like I've been praying about this man. I've been praying about this girl and I'm just wanting God to give me a sign. Would you throw that sign up? That's your sign. <laughs> Like, you don't need a sign. He's broke. He, he's, he's whatever he is. You don't, the sign is the Bible. The Bible will tell you what to pick. And so when it comes to, to laws, like those speed limit signs, 
those are not recommendations. Like when it says 40, it's not saying, well, you know, we're hoping people go 40, but you know, it's, if you want to go 80, it's 80. No, it's, it's a law. It's a rule. And if you go over it, what's going to happen? You'll throw that picture up. Maybe the next picture. The, the, there you go. The good old boys in blue. So what happens is if you roll through that stop sign or you go 55 and a 40, he is lurking. And if he's in Rogersville, he sits on top of the hill behind that church. I'll let you know. You set this cruise control when you're in Rogersville. Right? So he's, he's trying to catch somebody doing what? Speeding, breaking the law. They need, their taxes aren't enough. They need you to supply all the funding for their parks and governance and everything else. And so I promise you what this officer is saying is, he's not going to pull you over and say, you did a really good job coming to a complete stop right there. He's not going to pull you over and say, you did it. You did it. Somebody finally did it. I wanted to tell you, congratulations, you used your turn signal. He's not going to say, you went 40. Police officers don't pull you over to encourage you. They pull you over to condemn you. You've broken a law, and now they feel like their job is to let you know you broke the law and what the penalty is. Laws do not exist to encourage us. They do not exist to comfort us. They exist to condemn us to let us know where we missed the mark and to show us where we fell short and to condemn us. And so when Jesus goes in this teaching on the law, you have to know this. All laws exist to condemn people. And he says this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Everybody say fulfill. Fulfill, to complete, to accomplish. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished or fulfilled. That dot or that iota is the smallest mark in all of the Hebrew alphabet. For us, it'd be the dot upon the I or the cross between the lowercase. It's the smallest. So Jesus said, not until the smallest little punctuation mark is completed will this pass away or until it's accomplished. He said, therefore, whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, everybody say exceeds, exceeds that of the scribes or Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Like, this is prophetic. He's telling the Pharisees, listen, I didn't come to get rid of the law. I didn't come to abolish it. I didn't come to get rid of it. I came to fulfill it. And you're all trying to keep the law. Unless your righteousness exceeds, surpasses, is more than the Pharisees who knew the law inside and out and lived their lives just trying to fulfill it and trying to obey it, unless it surpasses them, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's literally Jesus' teaching on who he is, is the king of righteousness. And what he expects his followers, who should be righteous, but righteous not in an external way, in an internal way. Jesus says, I've come not to abolish the law, but to move the law from outward obedience to internal surrender. Totally different. 
The Pharisees, all they cared about was the external appearance, obedience. We're obeying this, we're obeying that. Jesus says, I don't care as much about that as I do. Are you surrendered to the king on the inside? Because if you're surrendered on the inside, the outside will take care of itself. And so he goes through this whole teaching, and the Pharisees start getting nervous. They start thinking, well, maybe Jesus is going to destroy the law. Maybe he's going to get rid of the law. And the law is our identity. The law is where we find our accomplishment. The law is where I find my value at. The law is where, so if you think of the Pharisees, they were just modern-day police officers. So what, what would you think if police officers said, hey, there's no more laws in America? They have nothing to do anymore. And the Pharisees are afraid they'll have nothing to do anymore. Their jobs are gone. Their identity is gone. Their value is gone. Their provision is gone. And they're worried Jesus is going to destroy this law. And he covers us, and I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. For everything you see in that law points to me. And it rocked them because all they want to do is protect the law. They didn't think there could be anything greater than the Torah or the first five books of the Bible. They didn't think there could be anybody greater than Moses, the man who delivered their Hebrew family out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the promised land. They didn't think there could be anybody greater than the prophets of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. And Jesus shows up and he says, listen, I don't need to abolish them. I don't need to destroy the prophets. I don't need to get rid of the law. I don't need to get rid of how the law pointed to the holiness of God. I'm not getting rid of holiness. I'm increasing holiness. But I came to tell you is, Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is greater than the law. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what he's saying is, I fulfilled it all. And it messed them up. They couldn't think of anybody being better than Moses. How can you, Jesus, the carpenter's son, deliver us better than Moses delivered our people out of Egypt? And he later shows them, he says, when I resurrect, I'm splitting the chasm between life and death, where now we're going to be passing over from death into life. If you thought crossing the Red Sea was good, wait till you see me resurrected. And he's trying to show them that everything's great. And there's three myths he's trying to debunk that they were talking trash about Jesus. They thought, one, okay, he's going to bring salvation by destroying the law. They just get rid of the law, so now everybody, we call this universalism in today's language, where everybody, God is love, everybody gets to go to heaven, everybody's saved, everybody's a child of God, there is no standard, we're all good. That's a myth. Jesus says, I'm not destroying the law, actually you have to exceed the law now that he came. The second myth is whether he would lower the standard. That Jesus brings grace and it lowers the bar of salvation. Jesus easily debunks that by saying, hey, you have to exceed the Pharisees and the scribes in righteousness. And the other one was that maybe he was going to make us keep the law. That we have to be like the Pharisees and the scribes where we walk around living our lives, checking off boxes, trying to please God. He's mad at us. He hates us. And if we just do the right things, maybe he'll like us. And Jesus says, no, no, none of those. I didn't come to abolish it. I didn't come to increase it. I came to make a way where there seems to be no way. And so for some of you saying, what is this law? The law is the law of Moses. There's five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is the law of Moses. And it's 613 different rules. Look at your neighbor and say, 613. You thought your wife's honeydew list was bad. 613. 248 of them are positive. The thou shalt, thou shalt do this. 
The 365, one for every day of the year, are the thou shalt nots. Meaning if you do this, you get stoned. If you do this, you get kicked out of the city. If you do this, 613 laws. I can't remember what grades my kids are in right now. And there's 613 of these laws that I have to keep and obey and fulfill in every single dot, iota, iota and jottle and tittle and everything just to please God. And so it's broke down in four areas. One is the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments. You had to keep the Ten Commandments. You had to honor your mother and father. You couldn't make any false images. You, you, had to, you couldn't swear. You couldn't do all these things. That's the moral law, and it was pointing towards the righteousness of God. Then you have the ceremonial law, which is the law of all the things you read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that the priest has to wash this way before he makes this sacrifice. He can't have mixed garments. He can't wear cotton and polyester together. You have to make this sacrifice if he sin this way. Only on the Day of Atonement can the priest, after he washes, makes a sacrifice. Can he enter in the Holy of Holies? All these ceremonial laws, which points to the fact that God is a holy God, and you cannot just approach him being unholy. He's a holy God who expects to be worshiped in a holy way. He expects a certain way. And what it's showing is that Jesus is trying to fulfill all those requirements of the ceremonial law as our high priest and our sacrifice. Then you have the civil laws. That's how we get along together. As the nation of Israel is coming out of Egypt, they had to get along, and they couldn't get along for over 10 days. And so God gives them this law and says, listen, if your neighbor hits you, here's the penalty. If your neighbor steals from you, here's your penalty. If your ox falls in a ditch and dies and your neighbor dug the ditch, it's his fault. Here's what I'm going to do. So if your ox fell last week, we have a law set up for you. If you're roofing and you don't set up a perimeter around your roof and somebody falls off, you're held responsible. And so the civil law was just to help them love each other the way God wanted them to love each other. And last but not least was the dietary law. You couldn't eat pork or shellfish and those type of things. And I've heard people say, well, well that's just stupid. I read a book a couple years ago on mental health, like uh, um, Alzheimer's, doctors, and they found out that the best healthy diet for your brain is Levitical diet. That if you eat this diet, it prevents your brain from getting Alzheimer's and dementia and many things. So God wasn't giving them the dietary law because he hates bacon. He's giving them the dietary law because he wanted them to live as long as possible to set up a new kingdom here on earth. And so he gives them this whole law, and Jesus says, well, I'm greater than this law. That law is nothing compared to me. And they get frustrated. And here's what we need to know, that once they started getting frustrated, Jesus tried to debunk it, and the principle is this. The law was never God's preferred destination for his people, ever. It was not his preferred destination. Jesus and relationship with God was his preferred destination. But the Hebrews couldn't get this. They thought that the law was the greatest, that that was God's plan from the beginning. Ever since God started, the law was God's plan. Condemnation is never God's preferred destination. God did not create the universe. So you know what? I'm going to create these people just so I can condemn them. Like he's some sick psycho sociopath that has their toys. When you're, We all had the weird cousin that had their toys. They'd burn their toys. Or they'd mess with them. Like they're crazy. Like God is not, God did not create you to condemn you. He created you to have a relationship with you. And so if you start thinking that the law is God's preferred destination, you think condemnation is the primary characteristic of God. And it's not. 
relationship is. When you think about the law, the law did not begin in the Garden of Eden. The law did not begin with Abraham. It didn't begin with Isaac. It didn't begin with Jacob. It didn't begin with Moses. It didn't begin until he delivered the Hebrews out of Egypt did the law come into play. And so we have to know as people that what God implemented as a temporary solution was never God's ultimate plan. And it's primary because if you don't get that, you'll always think God is out as a police officer or the judge trying to condemn you for your failures and your mistakes rather than a God who's trying to redeem you from your failures and mistakes. And there's a major difference. It's like this. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned. They, they sinned. They, they, they ate of the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil. They sinned. Now they're ashamed. It says they're naked and ashamed. They're hiding from God. And what is, what is God's response? Does God show up with the law and say, Adam and Eve, you broke law number one of all the laws. There's only one law. You broke law number one, and now you've done this. Now you're going to hell. I'm condemning you. No. God's first question wasn't condemnation. It was relationship. He didn't say, you've done this. He says, Adam, Eve, where are you? Do you realize when you sin, God is not as concerned with what you did as where you are. He wants you as close to him as possible. And when we sin, we choose to go another direction away from God's presence instead of deeper into his presence. So Adam and Eve, here they are. They sin. God makes a sacrifice for him. There is no law. He makes a sacrifice to cover their sins, to cover their shame, to cover their guilt before there's ever a law. Which tells me God's primary characteristic is not condemnation, but his presence. Then you get into Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of the faith. They didn't have a law. They didn't have the Ten Commandments. They didn't have these things, yet they still tithed, yet they made sacrifices. Why? It was all about a presence-driven relationship with God. Moses, God redeems his people out of Egypt. They're in slavery. He redeems them. Then he gives them the law. He doesn't give them the law and say, hey, I need you to do one through 613, when you get done with 613, I'm going to come back, I'm going to get you and take you out of here. Right? He delivered them, he brings them into the wilderness, and then he gives them the law to protect their deliverance. And it makes a huge difference, and, and my mentor, Dr. R.T. Kendall, said it this way. He said, the law is not the primary part of God's timeline. It's in the parentheses. It's faith, parentheses, law, parentheses, faith. If you look at that, why is that important? It's because you realize the timeline of God is going from faith and relationship. It's interrupted by the law to point to a Savior and a deliverer, and then brings us back to faith. And Paul talks about this in Hebrews and Romans. He says, by faith, it was counted to Abraham as righteousness. By faith, it was counted to all Noah as right. All these men, it's by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. But yet then here we are in our Christianity, and we think it's all about law. So anything that existed before the law exists on the other side of the law. That's why people say, well, Sabbath is part of the law. No, homie, Sabbath started in Genesis 1. And it wasn't a part of the law. It was a gift God gave Adam and Eve to enjoy his presence with one another together with. Well, tithing, that's so Old Testament, that's so law. No, 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 no. See, tithing existed well before the law did. Tithing existed when Jacob encountered God, when Abraham encountered God. They gave a tenth of their belongings as sacrifice in gratitude to him. 
You look at the sacrifices of worship, it's on the other side. Everything that existed on the other side of the law exists on this side of the law. And it's pivotal for some of you. It's pivotal. Because you understand that God is not a law-keeping God. He's a freedom-keeping God. And every law he gives us is not one to condemn us, but to help us keep our freedom and our deliverance he's already provided for us in Jesus. And when you capture that, it changes everything else about you. In Galatians 3.16, it says it this way. It says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ, this is what I mean. He says this, the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Do you realize your salvation is not by the law, but by promise? That God made a promise in the Garden of Eden that he was going to bring a deliverer that would crush the head of Satan. You didn't have to fulfill the law to get it. It was a promise that you received by faith. He says in verse 19, but why then the law? He says it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Verse 23, but now before faith came, we were held captive under the law in prison until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by what? Faith, not law, but by faith faith. But now that faith that has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you're all sons of God through faith. What he's saying is, you're so, the whole book of Galatians is about the grace in law, faith in law, all this back and forth. What he's saying is, why are you so caught up on the law? Your promise was not given to you by the law. Your promise is given to you 430 years before the law was. And I've been waiting to deliver this promise. And it was all pointing to Jesus. And when Jesus came, he delivered this promise. And that you're saved through this promise. That now you're not these, these law citizens. Now you're sons and daughters. Just like Adam and Eve. Just like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Just like Noah. You're just like them. You're sons who the son who set free is free indeed. You're sons freed from the law. But here's where the Hebrews, here's where the Pharisees were. Yeah, but we kind of like it. So you kind of like waking up every morning trying to figure out how you're going to fulfill 613 laws. Yeah, I kind of like it because at least I know what to expect. I kind of like it because at least I can control what other people do. And what I've learned about people that are law-keeping Pharisees is they're great at keeping the law for everybody else, but not very good for themselves. And so the Pharisees liked it because they control what you did. They can control what you do. They can control what you do by holding these laws over you. But they were out living their lives pretty much however they pleased. And they said, yeah, we, we kind of like it. And so what happens is many times we camp out where we find our comfort in religion. The Hebrews, the Pharisees, they'd had this move of God where God delivered the, the, the Hebrews out of Egypt into the promised land, and they said, that is the greatest move of God. We're going to camp out right there. I don't know about you, but I don't mind camping, but Toya's idea of camping is a Hampton Inn. I've ruined that a couple years ago. We took a young adult trip to, to the Yokoi River for whitewater rafting, 
And so I'm cooking hamburgers for like 50 young adults, right? So if you're down by the Coe or Gatlinburg, I know the test to see if there's bears are there or the trash cans in a cage. If they're not in a cage, there's no bears. You're safe. There's no yogi bear. There's, you're good. So I cook all these hamburgers. There's no cans uh, in cages. So I'm like, we're, we're good. So we go to sleep. Our tent's like a little bit down the hill. And if she's already like, I don't want to camp. Like Hampton Inn's like my kind. Of, that's roughing it for me. Like we're, we're arguing already. We lay down. Again, I'm blind as a bat. I got my contacts out. I'm just trying to sleep. And I, somebody hits me on my chest. And I was like, what? It's like domestic violence. I'm like, I'm not Johnny Depp. You got to chill out, girl. There's got to be a law in one of those 613 for that. Like, you got to chill out. And she's like, I know you heard that. I was like, I didn't hear anything. So I'm laying there, and I'm trying to pretend like I'm asleep, so I'm going to deal with it. And I hear this right next to the tent. And she's like, I know you heard that. I said, I didn't hear anything. Go back to sleep. Like, you know, guys, like, if we ignore it, maybe it'll go away. And all of a sudden, I hear it again, walking around our tent, and I'm thinking, it's a bear. I'm like, oh. So she's starting to hyperventilate and cry. She's like, I'm going to make a run for it. I'm not the outdoor expert, but I know I've watched survival shows. You don't outrun the bear. I'm like, you can't outrun the, you got to stay here. She's like, no, I'm running. She's like, you better do something. I'm like, I'm blind. I have flip-flops as a weapon. Like, what do you want me to do? She's like, you better do something. So then I start thinking, I cooked like 100 hamburgers over the grill. It thinks I'm the world's largest hamburger right now. So now I'm not worried about her. It's after me. She says, you need to do something. I said, what do you want me to do? She said, you need to yell for help. I said, look, I'm a grown man. I'd rather die than scream for help. She, and she screams, like, I'm going to run for it. I said, you can't run for it. So, so there's a couple other people. Came. I said, hey, Scott, John, hey, nobody moves. She's like, you didn't scream help. I'm like, that's close enough. Like, she's like, you need, I said, Scott, John, help, bear. And about that time, like flashlights come on, tents are rolling down hills, everybody's freaking out, they're panicking. And so we get out, there's no bear there, it's gone. So now here I am with these young adults, I'm like 30 years old, these young adults are, oh, Pastor Bobby, tough guy. Little possum walks around his tent, he gets scared. Deer painted for water, walk, like, so the next day we're in the Ocoee, and so they're all talking trash. Oh, Pastor Bobby scared the deer that painted for water. All this stuff. And so I asked our little river god, who's a pothead smoking hippie. I said, man, what are the chances that was a bear? He said, where are y'all camping at? I said, we're camping at y'all's, y'all's little campground at the river place. He said, oh, 120% chance it was a bear. I said, what do you mean? There's no signs. He's like, the world's largest black bear conservatory is right across that creek you were camping at. I'm like, well, yeah, why don't you put the, the, the trash cans in the cage and take care? He's like, oh, they don't bother you. I'm like, unless you cook 100 hamburgers. So we don't camp in the Gorley household anymore. But some people love to camp. Right? We're not the type. We're, we're on the move. Some people just like to camp. And what I learned is many of us as believers like to camp out at the last place God moved with us. Whatever that may be, I think for, the, for these Pharisees, when, when God took Moses and they crossed the Red Sea and they went to the wilderness, they thought this was the greatest move of God ever. We're never leaving this. And they camped out right there. 
For some, maybe God moved in a Billy Graham crusade and you got saved and now that's your, your mentality, your picture for what any move of God is going to be. It's going to be a Billy Graham crusade. For some of you, maybe it's Brownsville. Maybe it's uh, the Toronto Blessing. For some of you, maybe it's an old sawdust tent camp meeting. For some of you, maybe it's old gospel hymns. For some, maybe it's contemporary worship. For some, maybe it's KJV 1611. Maybe for some of you, it's expository. But we all have these places where we encountered God and we set up camp and we stay there thinking, this is the best it's ever going to be. In the Hebrews, the Pharisees thought, it can't get any better than this. This is the best. We have 613 laws that tell us what God likes. And Jesus says, whoa, you're camping out the wrong spot, bro. Because all 613 of those things are pointing to something greater. I'm greater than Moses. I'm greater than the law. I'm greater than the prophets. I'm greater than rules 1 through 613. They all point to me. And their minds were blown because the greatest threat to the next move of God is the last move of God. And we all default back to this, myself included. We all default because, you see, the, the law was nothing more than a sign that's pointing to the destination. Like we live in Florida, it's exactly 100 mile, 101 miles from here to Nashville Nissan Stadium, also known as the promised land of God. It's not Tuscaloosa, it's not Florence, Nashville is the promised land. And when you get there, they let you know because they'll start saying there's a countdown clock before you get there. How crazy would it be if you were going to Nashville and you got to the sign that said 101 miles or maybe 50 miles or even 30 miles, or even 20 miles, he said, this is it. This is it. We've made it. And you set up camp and you stay in Lawrenceburg. I'll tell you, Lawrenceburg ain't Nashville. It ain't even close. That'd be crazy. But that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were camping out in Lawrenceburg when Jesus was promising them Nashville. They were camping out in legalism when Jesus had promised them freedom. They camped out in the old move of God from 2,000 years ago when Jesus said, I'm doing something new that I can't put in old wineskins. And he says, I'm not here to abolish the law. When I drive to Nashville, when I pass this sign, I don't have to tear this sign down. I don't have to tear down the next sign. I don't have to tear down the welcome to Nashville sign. Why? They'll help other people be pointed to the destination. Jesus said, I don't have to tear down the sign. I don't have to tear down the sign. When you finish cooking your cake, you don't have to burn up the recipe. Why? It points people to the final destination. The law is never the final destination. It's just a sign showing us how to get there. You say, well, why are you hitting this so hard? There are believers now that are going back to legalism and the law and the Torah because they've lost sight of the theology of the law. The law has a purpose. Yes, it shows us the condemnation we have in our sin. Yes, it shows us the righteousness of God. It shows us how holy God is. It shows us how much we fall short. It shows us all these things, but it also points us to a way of deliverance. It doesn't condemn us. It, it, the law condemns us, and then Jesus frees us. That's why John three sixteen says, I didn't come to condemn the world. The world's already condemned. I've come to save the world. And so the principle is this, that Jesus is the lawmaker who became the law keeper and died for lawbreakers. He's a law maker. Every one of those 613 laws, Jesus was involved in the writing process. He created them, he wrote them, he made them, but then he came to earth and he kept 
all 613 laws. He kept them all. From the moral laws, there is nobody that has never not broken a Ten Commandment except for Jesus. He even honored his mother and father. When she asked him to turn the water into wine, he obeyed her to honor her to keep the law, even though his time had not come yet. Every single law, the ceremonial law, he kept all of it. The civil law, the dietary law, he kept it all. Why? He's the lawmaker who became the law keeper and died for all of us law breakers. It says this in Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, not condemn them, but to redeem them so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Jesus lived his entire life entire life in a calculated fashion to fulfill all 613 laws. He lived his life in a calculated way to fulfill all 308 prophecies about the Messiah. He lived his life when he says, I have come. I have not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. That word, I have come, is very unique. And it's basically saying, I left heaven and came to earth to do this. This is my destiny. This is my purpose. This is my whole life's purpose, is to leave heaven and fulfill all of this for you. And what makes that even better is he says, he became under the law to redeem those who are under law, meaning we're condemned. Jesus got condemned with us in, under the law so he could rescue us from the law. You know what that's like? It's like Moses leaving the wilderness, walking back into Egypt, becoming underneath Pharaoh's authority to rescue the Hebrews and deliver them out. Jesus left heaven, came to earth under our law, our system, to show us the way and deliver us through the Red Sea or through death into life forevermore. See, Jesus is the Word. He is the Torah. John 1.1. 1, 1. And He was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was the Torah. He was the Pentateuch. He was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. He's all of that. He fulfilled every single dot, iota, and tittle. He fulfilled every single part of the law. But He's also the sacrificial lamb. He fulfilled all of the ceremonial law. He is the high priest. He is the pure. He's the unblemished. He's the basin. He's the candlestick. He's all of it. Jesus is the way. Jesus is all of it. It all points to Jesus. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the law. He's greater than condemnation. And he came to say, I am not under the law anymore, and I'm taking you with me back to freedom. That is what Jesus was trying to say. See, he didn't have to get rid of the law to do that. He kept the law. And he says it still has a purpose. He, and I think the Pharisees may have been scared that maybe this was some liberal, crazy universalist. That maybe he was going to take away the holiness. Because the, the law pointed to the holiness of God. He said, no, no. He said, I'm not going to get rid of the holiness of God. I'm not getting rid of the promises of God that came under the law. I'm exceeding them. Where they're external, I'm taking them deeper on the inside. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is where the law says don't commit murder. I say don't have hate in your heart. Law says don't have an affair or adultery. I say don't have lust in your heart. He takes the external righteousness of the law and he takes it internally to surrendered hearts of disciples. And here's what he was saying. The law of the Spirit 
is greater than the law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit is greater than the law of sin and death. What's that mean? It means grace always has more power than sin does. He says this in Romans 8. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation. Everybody say condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Now what's interesting is what the law exists to what? Condemn. The law exists to condemn. The law exists to show us how bad we are. The law shows how to condemn us. And Jesus here says, now there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he fulfilled the law. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that right, the righteousness requirement of the law might be what? Fulfilled in us, not by us, but in us through Jesus who walked not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jesus takes the law and gives us a better law. The Pharisees are worshiping the, the law of Moses, he said, no, there's a law that's better, the law of the Spirit. It's a law of freedom. It's a law of grace. It's a law of mercy. It's still a law of righteousness, still a law of holiness. It just exceeds that. And he says, now we become sons and daughters of the king. Why? The law or religion is about regulations and requirements and routines, but relationship is about vows and commitment. Religion is about duty, but relationship is about dedication and love. Religion is about fear, but relationship is about love. Religion is about condemnation, but relationship is about freedom. And he says this law of the Spirit trumps this law of sin and death. Now, the law of sin and death is still there. The law of Moses is still there. But this law is greater than that. It's like this. When, when I fly, like I picked Toy up from the airport Friday. She's up seeing her dad and picked her up. You know, it still amazes me that airplanes fly. They're huge, and they have a lot of people on them, a lot of fuel in them. Gravity works. I don't know how it works, and I was reading that you don't get rid of gravity when you fly. You just have to have a, a power that's more powerful than gravity. Or to put it another way, the law of gravity is real. It works, but you have to have a greater law than gravity in order to supersede it and fly. So what do airplanes do? Airplanes know the law of gravity exists, but they have two other laws, the law of aerodynamics and the law of thrust. And so in order for an airplane to fly, there has to be enough thrust to propel an airplane to break free of the law of gravity. In the same way, what Jesus is saying here, in order to break free from condemnation of the law, to break free from the regulations of the law, to break free from the shame of the law, to break free from that law, there has to be a greater law. And the greater law is the law of the Spirit that God gives us through confession and repentance and salvation through Jesus that now supersedes. Where you used to walk through sin, you used to walk through shame, now you rise above it. See, that's how Jesus would say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is, I'm giving you an ability. Grace is not, grace is not just a, an eraser for your sin. Grace is a thrust engine, a jet engine for your life to propel you over sin so you don't have to sin anymore. See, we bought into this, I almost I always say that same, this junky theology 
of graces. Well, we're all just sinners saved by grace. We mess up. God's a gracious God. No, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the law. So if the law was hard to keep before, how am I going to exceed it now? Jesus says, because I'm going to give you the power of the Holy Spirit, which is not just the power to speak in tongues or the power to prophesy, but the power to rise above sin. He said, I'm going to give you this. So some of you used to walk in shame and guilt and condemnation because you go from sin to temptation to sin. Temptation to sin to the altar to sin, temptation. That's not grace. Grace is when you realize you've been forgiven so much that this gratitude inside of your heart, this mercy inside of you, compels you to not put Jesus through what he went through on Good Friday again. See, that is the power of grace. The law of the Spirit supersedes that to bring us to a place where Christians should look like Jesus incarnate. So how, do, how does this work? Well, you learn to keep the law like a Christian. He didn't abolish the law. He kept the law. So how do you keep the law like a Christian? One, you love the law. You just don't worship it. The Pharisees worship the law. You can love the law. The law has great truths and great principles. The law reminds me that I'm broken. The law reminds me that we live in a sinful world. The law reminds me that I can access God through a process of confession and repentance and washing and cleansing and prayer and thanksgiving. And here's what David said in Psalm 1. He says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. You know, you can't understand grace until you understand the law. And the more I read the Bible, and the more I see the holiness of God, the more I appreciate God's grace. And so I keep the law by loving the law, but worshiping Jesus and letting the law point me back to Jesus. Too, I walk in the Spirit, not by the flesh. How do you fulfill the law? I walk in the Spirit. I live by the life of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 6 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. How do you do that? I realize there's two things going on in me right now. There's the law of the Spirit that lives on the inside of me who wants me to produce patience and love and peace and joy and long-suffering and patience. And all these things. But then my flesh wants to do all this other stuff. Every day I wake up, I choose if I'm going to be led by the Spirit or led by my flesh. We do things like prayer to get our flesh to submit to our spirit. We fast to get our flesh to submit to our spirit. But I choose that I'm either to walk and fulfill the law of the Spirit or walk and fulfill the law of the flesh. But three, and I think it's the most important, is if you want to fulfill the law like a Christian, you follow Jesus like a Pharisee would follow the law. You follow Jesus with the same passion, the same commitment, the same fervor that a Pharisee would to follow the law. Do you realize Pharisees would stay up all night to study the Scriptures to make sure they were following it correctly? And now we have this greater law in Jesus that we get to follow him. The true vine, the true bread, the, the way, the truth, and the life. We get to follow him. But many times we put more effort in following everything else and dragging him along with us. If there's one thing I say about American Christianity is this. We don't follow Jesus. We ask him to follow us. What that means is this. We... There's a term that they used to use in the Old Testament and the New Testament for rabbis. It was this. When you read Matthew 4, when Jesus picks his disciples, he said this, come and follow me. 
He picked the disciples. Most people think they're 14 to 15 years old. And this was traditional. They finished school about 14. Rabbis or teachers would come and pick the best students from each school and say, hey, come and follow me. And as they were leaving everything to follow this rabbi, their family would tell them, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. What they're saying is, may you follow so closely to him that as his sandals kick up dust, you're covered in his dust. And I think we've come back to a place that if we're going to see God move in a new way, not the old way, but in a new way, it's going to come by following Jesus as closely as we can. Just like a Pharisee would follow the law every iota, dot, and tittle, we're called to follow Jesus every hair on his head. You should be so close to him, you know the number of hairs on his head. You're so close to him that all you can see is the back of his tunic. You're so close to him that you're covered in his dust. And if you just follow Jesus, the law takes care of itself. Anthony, come here real quick. If I just follow Jesus, may I be covering the dust of my rabbi? It's like this. Come over here. If Anthony's Jesus, which is 40 years old, which means he died seven years ago, if I'm following him, you can't see me if I'm following closely to him. So when the world sees me, they see Jesus. If I'm following so close to him when he's walking, he's kicking him in his dust. I'm covered in his dust. They don't see me, they see Jesus. And if I'm following Jesus with passion, wherever he goes, I'm going to go. That means I'm fulfilling. If he's fulfilling the law, I'm fulfilling the law with him because I'm walking right behind him. See, discipleship is not education. Discipleship is close following. Discipleship is not indoctrination. It's transformation of being covered in everything the rabbi does. You're covered in it. We have to get to a place we follow him so closely that the world doesn't see Bobby. It only sees Jesus. That's how you fulfill the law like a Christian. If you would just bow your heads and close your eyes just real quick. I'm not going to take long. This is one question. Two questions. Well, if you're in this room, maybe you come from a, a denomination that is very legalistic, where it's all about upholding laws and regulations. Maybe it's about what you can't do and cannot do. And you maybe even chuckled and said, man, 613, I think we had 1,230 laws in my church. Or maybe you find yourself in that legalism where you're always trying to, to check boxes and, and find a way to get God's approval based off what you do. That is not... God's intended purpose for Jesus coming to earth to hold the law over your head. He died so you could have freedom and become a child of God and walk in the spirit of the living God. That's me. I just, I just need God to, to restore me this passion for walking in the freedom of the spirit and the life of the spirit and knock off this legalism just off of my mind. If that's you, just raise your hand real quick right where you are. Thank you. Hold over them. Put your hands down. Father, I pray right now. For the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. I pray for freedom to reign in the lives of your people. Father, I pray those who have been held captive and bondage by legalism, by legalistic teaching. Father, I pray for freedom to reign in their minds. That, Father, they can follow you as, as you fulfill the law in their lives, as you fulfill your purpose, as you fulfill your mission. Father, they'll stay so close to you, they'll be covered in your dust. Second question is this. Maybe you're a believer, but you're not a follower. 
Maybe you're not covered in the dust of your rabbi. Maybe you're just walking where you want to go and asking God to go with you. And maybe today is the day the Holy Spirit is burning inside of you to say, today's the day you take the step of following Jesus. I mean, where he goes, I go. If he's not going there, I'm not going there. If he's not doing it, I'm not doing it. But if he's in it, I'm in it. And you said, I want to make a, a commitment today, a dedication just to grab a hold of his tunic and follow him as closely as I can. If that's you, every head bowed, every eye closed. If that's you, that's someone just slip your hand up real quick. Say, you know what, today's the day I'm going to start, I'm going to start following and walking. Thank you. Anybody else? You can put your hands down if you raise them. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you that you're still the Messiah who still comes and calls us as I choose you. Come and follow me. Father, I thank you for these people that you're stirring within their hearts for this step to just begin to follow and be covered in the dust of the rabbi. And I just pray right now, Father, that you set their feet, you set their path right in front of them, that you empower them through the Holy Spirit. You show them the way through your word, and you guide them every step. So, Father, I pray for renewal of their mind. I pray for renewal of their heart. I pray that you cover them, not just in the dust, but in the blood of your son, Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you right now for this day that you've made, and we bless you in Jesus' name and all God's people said.